The following talk was given at Mile High Church in Lakewood, Colorado. Please visit our website at milehighchurch.org. All right, so we're uh, continuing with our Adventure in Faith 2017, Your Essential Spark, igniting a yes-powered, soul-stirring vision. The whole idea being that there is a spark within every one of us that cannot be put out. It is a spark of the divine spirit. It is the God seed within you. It is a spark of vibrant and creative life. And as we commune with this spark, uh, it is fanned into a flame that produces a sense of vision, of expanded livingness. And we're all about tapping into that vision, every single one of us. And as we can begin to conclude our series, we'll even be turning our attention to the vision of Mile High Church and how it can become even more white hot. Vision is important. On the first week, we talked about reunion, reuniting with that spark in our hearts. It's not in our figured-out minds, in our heads, it's in our heart. The second week was about transcendence, how we must not let our visionary capacity be overwhelmed by experiences of the darkness in our own lives or in our world. We must maintain that vision. Last week, we talked about combustion, the phenomenon of how this spark can not only be fanned into a flame, but into a white-hot energy in us when we fall in love with it, when we perceive the deep beauty of what matters to us most, and we decide it's worthy of our risks, it's worthy of our enthusiasm in our life. And then that brings us today to a very important part of this journey in vision, and that is resilience, championing a courageous vision, a visionary courage. So, I think it's important to take stock of the various quirks we have around the demands we place in life and, and uh, the things we think we need and what's important in our lives. One of our members gave me this little thing about actual comments that the Forest Service received from comment cards, comment cards from individuals who had been camping or uh, hiking in the wilderness. These are interesting comments when you look at the demands they seem to place here. One comment says, escalators would help on the steep uphill sections. <laughs> yeah, one of what a wonderful nature feature, some escalators around, yeah. Somebody wrote, a small deer came into my camp and stole my bag of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Please call. I don't think they have a future in the wilderness myself. <laughs> Somebody wrote, too many bugs, leeches, spiders, and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. That's where they live. My goodness. Uh, This is amazing. (laughs) Somebody actually submitted this suggestion. The places where the trails do not exist are not well marked. (laughs) So I could just see thousands of signs. No trail here, no trail here, no trail here. But the capper, uh, the capper in these. Somebody put this brilliant suggestion forth. You know, a McDonald's at the trailhead would be nice. (laughs) Goodness, goodness, goodness. But you know, all of that, to take a look at the conditions and the demands that we overlay on things. At this point in this adventure in faith, it's really important to take a look at, uh, very honestly at ourselves. A lot of self-reflection will empower us. And to especially look at the demands we place on life and the requirements that we insist be met before we'll take our leaps, before we'll go forward. Uh, I I love the story of of the young man who was standing freezing on a roadside in Alaska 
uh, barely able to hold up a sign asking for a ride to Miami. (laughs) And finally, a a friendly trucker stopped, pulled over and said, well, you know, I'm not going to Miami, but I am going to Fort Lauderdale. And the young man said, oh, and he turned down the ride. And (laughs) that's somewhat what we do. In many respects, it's about resistance. And we're going to talk in depth about resistance today. Uh, But first, I think it's important to understand that it takes a significant amount of courage to really own a compelling white hot vision in your life. Here's why. Because inevitably, when you own your white hot vision, it will bring up your stuff. And it will bring into your life necessary experiences, situations, obstacles, challenges that are designed for your growth, for all of our growth. And we need to be willing to embrace those and own that growth so that it brings forth more of our potential, so that we're worthy of the very dream that we've embraced in our hearts. It's it's, that's so important. You can't dream big but stay small. And so a white-hot vision is our ticket to greater and greater degrees of life mastery. And, and very powerfully, one thing we must know is it's a huge step in life mastery when we are willing to discover and overcome those elements of ourselves which are secretly resisting our vision. To get in touch with the elements within ourselves that actually repel what we say we want to be about in this life. You see, we assume erroneously that the the greatest obstacles uh, to our vision uh, coming into fruition will be forces and and obstacles out there uh, around us. But actually, they're inner ones. They're inner things that we must greet and take a look at. And so inevitably, no matter what story that you have told about why it is that this dream has not shown up in your life yet, And no matter who you blame or what you blame, when it all boils down to it, the biggest limiting factor is most probably you and in my life, me. That's what is limiting us. So it doesn't do any good to scapegoat things. We have to take a deep look at ourselves. And what I like to remember is scapegoats make lousy pets, you know, so (laughs) they leave a lot of messes. So it's better that we look at ourselves in depth. And that which is sabotaging what we're about. Now, Abraham Maslow, the the great American psychologist who, uh, among many great things, identified the hierarchy of needs in people. He writes, we fear our highest possibilities as well as our lowest ones. We are generally afraid to become that which we glimpse in our most perfect moments. We enjoy and even thrill to the godlike possibilities we see in ourselves in such peak moments, and yet we simultaneously shiver with weakness, awe, and fear before these very same possibilities. Now, what he's writing of there has been called in psychology and certain business circles the upper limits problem. The upper limits problem is when we feel that our vision is taking us beyond what we can imagine or accept in our lives. And thus, when we feel like we're being pressed against what we've considered to be our upper limits, 
the tendency then is to start falling into resistance. And, and sometimes unwittingly to find yourself in resistance and thus sabotaging the very good that at one level you are seeking to have for your life. So it's a huge key in life to check in with ourselves honestly and see whether there's a part of us that actually does not want what we say we do want. Because what we say we want is actually going to thrust us above and beyond the upper limits we have sensed for ourselves. I mean, we created the upper limits, but when we're thrust beyond them, it's as though we're being thrust out of the comfort of our sense of worthiness. And thus we fall into resistance and into sabotage in our lives. And so what we get to do is is understand that resistance. Stephen Pressfield wrote an incredible book, The War of Art. It's all about resistance. Uh, And he writes, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. To yield to resistance deforms our spirit. It stunts us and makes us less than we are and were born to be. A rule of thumb, the more important a calling or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel toward pursuing it. It's a phenomenon in us all, resistance. And that's why today we're talking about resilience and a visionary courage because resilience is the antidote to resistance. Resilience is about being vigilantly alert to the major forms of resistance, which are fear, excuses, and neediness, and to move forward in our vision path anyway, to be hyper-alert to fear, excuses, neediness, and to go forward anyway. In his very book, Pressfield talks about Henry Fonda, the late great actor, who suffered from terrible stage fright his entire career. And inevitably, when he was about to go on in public, he would have to go to the men's room, up Chuck, and then he would clean himself up, and he wouldn't just run away from the theater, he would go out and he would do it. He would go on stage and do his thing. And he just became accustomed to it. And that's what he did. He didn't let the fear paralyze him and stop him from expressing our greatness. That's a metaphor for us. To what degree are we letting resistance in the form of fear cause us to bail? We don't have to do that. Resilience is we go on anyway. We go on anyway. The excuses, resistance has so many disguises of excuses like, well, I don't have enough time. Or I don't know if the time is right. Or nobody is supporting me. Or uh, I'm, I'm just too busy. Or I'm confused. I don't know what to do when all a vision really asks is just take a first step of any kind in one's life. So many excuses that are actually resistance in disguise. 
And then there's the neediness, how it is that we think we're going after something because it's a wonderful goal, and yet it's feeding some need within us, which is a resistance kind of phenomenon. I've shared with you how it was that I shared with a mentor of mine after my first year of ministry. He had asked me, how is it going? And I said, it's not growing fast enough. I want more people there. And later on, as we were leaving a restaurant, he pulled me aside and he dropped this bombshell into my psyche. He said, when you no longer need your church to grow, it'll probably start to grow. And I thought, what in God's name is he saying (laughs) to me? What minister in their their right mind doesn't want their church to grow, for crying out loud? But I I prayed about it, because every pearl that came from that man's mouth, I savored, and I realized. And this is, again, some of the real honesty we can bring to bear upon our lives. Compassionate self-honesty, I realized, yeah, I want church growth, not just because it's going to flourish our congregation and send our message more into the world and bless and heal lives, I was wanting it because I needed it. I needed it for my own sense of security and worth and value. When I started going to work on that, all the resistance fell away. And then, in fact, the church did grow. And I didn't have to work at it. To be hyper alert to those things, the fears, the excuses, and the neediness, which is all resistance, and then to go forward in a higher way in our lives. It's also, resilience is about, it's about, Not fighting that ceiling, that upper limit that we've established, but just acknowledging it and seeing that that ceiling is actually now going to be a foundation to build something bigger on. But it's not making ourselves wrong. It's just seeing that we all have that upper limit and it's waiting for us to transform it into a foundation for something bigger. And more than anything, resilience is really about drawing on the great spiritual self of us, the soul of us. Because... That's what's enfolded in a really great vision, a soulful vision. Some guy named Cecil Beaton, and I don't know who this guy is, but he said something great. He said, be daring, be different, be impractical, be anything that will assert integrity of purpose and imaginative vision against the play it safers the creatures of the commonplace, the slaves of the ordinary. Yeah, it's time to go for it, but we must go forward wisely, very alert to the resistance that lurks in so many ways. So I want to leave you with some things to do this week to win over resistance and to manifest your resilience. And the first is to activate bold commitment steps. Activate bold commitment steps. Resilience uh, calls us to more empowered believing and more empowered living. And there are two things that resilience depends upon and our vision depends upon. It's commitment and action. Commitment, to take a stand for your vision Not just if it's easy, not just if it flows forth conveniently, but a stand for your vision. Not just for a little while. Most great white-hot visions are lifelong directions for our life. And to take a stand for that, to be willing to grow, to learn, to be expanded, that kind of commitment. And the, the clear thing about this, though, is that commitment has to live in action, or else it's not a real commitment. Things we're committed to that we're not doing are not really commitments. They're just 
games we're playing in our heads. When we make a commitment, it's incumbent on, upon us to take those steps. Take the first steps and take first steps every day. I think it was Emerson who said, do the thing and you will have the power. Sometimes we say, no, I need to know I have the power before I do the thing. No, he said, do it. And you'll manifest your power. You'll discover your power. And O.A. Batista wrote, nothing's more important to the future of an idea than the first step you take to try it out. Take those first steps. Do the thing. William H. Murray, W.H. Murray, uh, is such an inspiring story. I love this one. He grew up in Scotland And he loved nature, and as he grew older, he began to climb many, many mountains until uh, World War II broke out. And so Murray enlisted, and he was sent to northern Africa uh, and uh, to the Middle East. But then he was captured and put in Nazi prison camps in Italy and Germany and Czechoslovakia. And while he was in one of those camps, he wrote a book called Mountaineering in Scotland. He wrote and finished it, and he wrote it on the only paper he had, which was rough toilet paper. He wrote the whole thing on that, which is an amazing thing, but then the Gestapo found it, and they destroyed it. Well, much to the surprise of his fellow inmates, his fellow prisoners, what he did was he simply began again. He began again, um, running the risk that it might be destroyed again. He began again, even though he was getting so weak from a near-starvation diet that it was probable he'd never be able to climb a mountain again, but he began again. Soon he was freed, and then in 1947, that very book was published. And there was something about Murray that, that gave him the energy to make it through the camps, that gave him the wherewithal to write and publish that first book, and gave him the, the committed power to be the deputy leader of the 1951 Mount Everest expedition, the expedition that found the right way to get to the top. And in the book, he wrote 20 books, in the book that he wrote after that successful Everest expedition, he wrote some words that have become classic, famous lines. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves to. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no one could have dreamt would have come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets, Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness as genius, power and magic in it. Powerful words. Activate bold, committed steps of action. And then secondly, prepare to bounce back. Because what I'm here to tell you is that in every vision... There are complications. There's ups and downs. There's twists and turns. Then there's our own stuff coming up to be dealt with. Bounce back. Bounce back. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has written, Obstacles are always faced in any great pursuit. We need self-confidence and a clear vision. And as the Tibetan saying goes... If things fall apart nine times, we should put them back together ten times again. 
bounce back. I'll show you a picture of a, a lady. This is Bonnie St. John. As you can probably discern, she's a skier. In fact, she's a champion skier. And she's also a, a speaker, and she's author of a book called Micro Resilience. And that's all about the little things we can do to build up our resilience, in addition to taking the big steps of unfolding our vision. Little things like uh, taking care of ourselves, nutrition, uh, diet, exercise, meditation, inner empowerment. She recommends those things as a part of being a resilient being, and I so agree with her. And she should know she had to practice that kind of stuff because at age five, she lost her right leg. And you'll see that in this picture, she achieved her medals with a prosthetic uh, leg there. She tells about an incident at one of the Olympics she participated in. I was in a slalom race, and I finished the first run and was in first place, and no one expected this. Going into the second round, the women in front of me were crashing on an icy spot. I went down, and I fell too. I got up, and I got over the finish line. I thought I'd failed, but I still won the bronze medal because everybody on one leg fell down. People fall down. Winners get up. The woman who won the race was the quicker getter-upper. In today's world, it's not if we're going to fall down or if things are going to go wrong. It's how good can we get at bouncing back? How good can we get at bouncing back? Bounce back. Prepare for it so that you're resilient and not so discouraged. And then finally, power up with soul. I think the most powerful thing in, in keeping ourselves resilient, even against our own resistance as well as the challenges we find on the path, is a sense of how our soul is enfolded in our vision, that our vision is a carrier of our soul power. You know, and to stay in deep, heartfelt, passionate connection with the soulful essence of what we care about, no matter how grand or, or, or apparently minute it is, it's all an expression of soul and therefore infinitely valuable to stay in touch with that. Wonderful author Michael Singer wrote a great book called The Untethered Soul, speaking about that soul in us. He said, deep within us, there's a direct connection to the divine. There's a part of our being that's beyond the personal self. And by the way, this is why we do meditation around here, why we're doing our contemplative service in the noon service, why we have the meditation retreat, because it's in the silence that we connect with that part of us beyond the worldly experience, the worldly self. You can consciously choose to identify with that part rather than with the psyche or the body. When you do this, a natural transformation begins to take place and you actually begin to know what it feels like to be moving in the direction of spirit. And your natural state will get higher and higher and you'll feel love instead of shame. Soul power. You know, kids, as we got to feast on the beautiful kids and their radiance uh, in, in the music, children... Their souls are still untethered. They haven't been weighted down and tied down by so much that, that we have. And I want to introduce you to another young lady in closing, and this is beautiful Rachel Beckwith, radiant young lady. Now, at age five, she found out about the organization Locks of Love, which takes the hair that individuals contribute and makes them into hair pieces for, uh, usually for children more than anybody, um, who've had medically uh, induced hair loss. And uh, she found out about that. She cut her hair and sent it in. 
And she let her hair grow again several times and cut that and sent it in. And then in June, the year of her ninth birthday, as her ninth birthday was approaching, she asked all the people she knew not to get her presents, but to contribute the money to another organization she had fallen in love with, Charity Water, which seeks to produce uh, clean and safe water for children and for all beings in, in developing nations around the world. Well, um, her little program, she wanted a, to raise $300 so she could bring um, wells and water to 15 children, um, but she fell a little short, $220. About a month later, uh, the family car was involved in a 13-car accident. And uh, most of the family survived it, but Rachel, uh, Rachel was critically injured. Well, word spread of her injury, and then the contributions started pouring in, many of them $9 for her nine years. And uh, eventually over a million dollars was raised for this organization, thus providing over 50,000 wells for kids around the world, for people around the world. The sad thing was that Rachel didn't make it. She passed away. Later on, her mother took it upon herself to visit uh, the work that her daughter's intention had created. And she wrote, it was overwhelming to see Rachel's Wells, to see what my nine-year-old has done for people all over the world. And her father said, Rachel was a very special girl. Her heart was bigger than this room. She always gave whatever she had and would continue to give more. A vision, born of our love, born of our souls, wants to unfold and, and succeed beyond our resistance. I'm inviting you to be prepared to be resilient and to call forth that visionary courage which will take you beyond the pitfalls and in the very process grow you into an ever more heartfelt, soulful light upon this planet. And I bless you in that.